turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. And then imagine this, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This so triggered their own resentment towards Jesus that they wanted to kill him. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful for for Jesus to stroll into our church here and just start healing every sick person? Can you imagine being angry at that? I mean, you have to really have a, a completely skewed perspective to be angry over something like this to the point where you want to kill Jesus. What a strange perspective the religious leaders had during Jesus' ministry. They wanted to get rid of the one who was healing people and changing lives. Pastor Gary will be telling you today how these leaders' skewed perspectives led them to miss the amazing things happening around them. And they even wanted to kill Jesus. Don't miss what Jesus is doing today. He's still changing lives. He's still healing hearts and bodies. And he can do something incredible in you, too. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 3, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, notice that, And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, he wasn't angry at the man, he was angry and deeply deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Notice their reaction to this. Now, it tells us here at the beginning of verse 1 that they are in the synagogue in Capernaum. And again, just to uh, throw some of these pictures up, this is actually uh, the location of the synagogue in uh, the city of Capernaum, one of the places that we visit when we tour Israel. Here's just kind of an aerial view of Capernaum, as much as they have uncovered to date. It really kind of stretches out even further into the fields there around it, but 
The, the synagogue there of the previous picture is located at the top of the screen. That's the ruins of the synagogue. And we know that this is the actual location of the synagogue uh, because of the basalt foundation that was made from the black volcanic rock that dates back to first century. So even though the, the synagogue has been rebuilt at different periods of time since Jesus' day, and now it basically lies in, in ruins, uh, this, we know from the foundation that it dates back to the time of Jesus. So this was that location. And Jesus goes into the synagogue. It's a Sabbath day. It's a Saturday. It's the Jewish synagogue and a Jewish Sabbath and a Jewish Messiah. And there is within the synagogue a man with a shriveled hand. It's paralyzed in some way. It's not, it doesn't tell us how his hand was shriveled, but it was, it was deformed or it was paralyzed in some way. And notice here that these religious leaders, it, it will tell us later in, in the story in verse 6 that they're the Pharisees, that they're not concerned as much as the guy who needs healing as they are in finding a way to accuse Jesus. They don't even have compassion for this guy. They just are filled with anger and resentment towards Jesus. And they actually are waiting, thinking to themselves, let's see if he goes ahead and heals this guy on the Sabbath. This is a Sabbath. You're not supposed to be doing any work. And so they think to themselves that if Jesus heals this guy, he will be violating the Sabbath. Just so bent on keeping the rules that they're no good to themselves. I remember a real story of a lady who was attending a small denominational church. This is years ago. I remember learning about this. And she wanted, she attended this church, a small denominational church, but a very rigid, very fundamental denominational church that followed rules, a lot of stuff that people couldn't do. And so she attended this church and decided that she wanted to donate an organ to the church. And I mean the kind you play, not a kidney, all right? You know, just, okay, an organ. Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? I want to donate an organ to the, to the church. I want to make him known. No, not that kind of donation. So anyway, she donates this organ that she can actually play. Problem is, she wore earrings. And at that particular church, they said, you can't, you can't play the organ that you're donating because you wear earrings and that's ungodly and you can't be up at playing the, playing the organ on the platform. Nobody else in the small church played the organ except her. You know what she said? God bless her. She said, I'll take out the earrings. It's not a big deal. I'll take out the earrings so I can play this organ that I'm donating to the church. It's okay. And then they said to her, no, 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 because if you take your earrings out, now you're just doing it because we told you to do it and your heart's not right. And so she didn't donate the organ. I mean, it's just ridiculous how much people... I've had people say to me they've come from very strict, very fundamental churches. I've actually had some people come to me saying that they've attended former churches where they had ushers at the front door. And you could only... Ladies, you could only wear dresses to this particular church. And they had ushers at the front door with rulers to make sure your dress wasn't above your knee. You say, are there actually churches out there that do this? Yeah, there's still some churches that are rule follower. We got to make sure we follow rules. Even though they're man-made, self-imposed rules, uh, they're very rule conscious. And that's what the Pharisees were. And the problem is you get so rule conscious, you miss relationship. And you don't even see human need that is around you. You got a guy here who needs healing, and instead of noticing him, all you're fixated on are the rules. That's the problem here with the Pharisees. And Jesus says to them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And he wants us to understand how, again, human need trumps religious rules. Uh, they knew that Jesus could heal. 
That's why they were expecting, they were watching to see if he could heal. They just didn't want him to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus is trying to pry them loose of their, of their rules and their traditions. And, and he wants them to be aware of the fact that, look, it's okay, you can heal somebody. This is a good thing to do. It's good to do, it's good to do a good thing. And it's good to save life. Uh, there, are, there are positive things that you can be doing on the Sabbath day. Don't be so rigid here. And uh, so he says to them, is it, is it good to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They remain silent because if, if you know that you're, you really don't have an answer, then you, you just don't open your mouth and uh, make yourself look even more ridiculous. And it says here he looked around at them in anger. Now notice that. There's a couple of times in the Gospels that it tells us that Jesus gets angry. And not all anger, not all forms of anger are sin. Jesus was not sinning here when he had anger. The, the difference often between anger that we engage in that becomes sinful and the kind of anger we see here with Jesus is that most of the times we get angry it's because someone has injured us someone has wronged us someone has offended us we get angry Jesus's anger was anger for the one who had been offended his anger was towards the religious leaders because they were injuring someone else this wasn't some kind of personal anger that Jesus had towards them he was anger, angry at the stubbornness of their hearts because they were injuring someone by their lack of compassion. And he was angry, and it says, and he was deeply distressed. The Greek can translate literally to be grieved at their stubborn hearts. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then imagine this. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This so triggered their own resentment towards Jesus that they wanted to kill him. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful for, for Jesus to stroll into our church here and just start healing every sick person? Can you imagine being angry at that? I mean, you have to really have a, a completely skewed perspective to be angry over something like this to the point where you want to kill Jesus. And Luke's gospel, when he records this story, says that they were furious. He uses that word. They were furious at Jesus. And they went out to plot how they might kill him. Uh, Well, it tells us in verse 7 that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. So this is the Sea of Galilee right there where Capernaum is located. So he withdraws there to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, the demons, They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So here we have this scene. So Jesus moves from the synagogue to the uh, the sea here of Galilee. And uh, there's such a, a great number of people here pressing up against him and people wanting to touch him to, to receive healing that he instructs his disciples, get me a boat, put me in a boat, and push me out a little bit from shore. Now, that served a couple of purposes. Number one, it gave a little bit of distance from the pressing of the crowd so he's not smothered by them. And it also acted as natural amplification. 
I mean, think about it. You know, I'm using a microphone so you can hear me in the room. Uh, but if you have a large crowd of people in these days, you don't have a PA system, it, go out into the water and use the water as natural amplification so he can uh, instruct the people. But I want you to notice here that it talks about people who come from such a great distance. It mentions here they came from Judea, which is uh, in the region of Jerusalem, Idumea. Idumea is all the way down by the Dead Sea. It's a region down by the Dead Sea, just uh, west of the Dead Sea. It's about 85 to 100 miles away. These people are walking 85 to 100 miles up to the Galilee because they've heard what Jesus was doing. In addition, it talks about people from the region of Tyre and Sidon there in verse 8. Tyre and Sidon are two uh, seacoast cities on the Mediterranean, they're about 60 to 85 miles away from the Galilee, and Tyre and Sidon are located in what is today Lebanon. I mean, these people are coming from all over and traveling great distances, but I want you to notice here that it says that they come because, verse 8, they heard all he was doing. And that's okay to a point, but if you're only following Jesus for what he will do for you rather than for who he is, that'll be short-lived. Because Jesus doesn't always do everything we want him to do when we want him to do it, in case you haven't figured that out by now. Because he is Lord and he does what he wants to do according to his divine will and his good purpose for your life. And if you're only following him basically because of what he does and what he might do for you with just hands out, you know, I just want, I just want what God is going to do for me, that relationship will be short-lived. Because it must be based on who he is. We have to be followers of Christ for who he is, that he's the son of God, he's the savior, he's Messiah who died for the sins of the world, that he paid the price in full on the cross, and that all who believe in him can be saved. It's not just about what he does, oh, those are fringe benefits, but it's who he is that is the ultimate source of all relationship, and it cannot be based on what he's going to give to you or do for you. He's done everything he needs to do for you and me. He's done the supreme thing by dying on the cross. And if he never does another thing for me, he's done more than enough already. Amen? Amen. So we must make sure that we're following him because of who he is, not simply for what he does. Because all these people here, they're going to eventually abandon him. They won't be with him. I mean, even his own disciples, when he's arrested, will abandon him at least momentarily. But the crowds, by and large, are going to be the same ones running after Jesus to see what he can do for them who will be shouting for his crucifixion in a few chapters. So don't make this all about what God's going to do for you. Make sure it's all about who he is. And he heals many. It says in verse 11, even the demons who knew that he is the Son of God, they cried out, but Jesus silenced them because he, 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 he didn't want to be made an earthly king by the masses. He came to do much more than that, and by this premature revelation of his identity, and because the demons know things spiritually, though they don't submit to him, here these demons were possessing people, and these people were going around, hey, you're the son of God, and Jesus was like, shh, shh, shh. you know, don't say, don't, he does not want to be revealed prematurely, and, uh, and so he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Well, verse 13 says that Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12. This is Mark's recording of the choosing of the 12 apostles. And he designated them apostles from the Greek word apostello, meaning to the sent ones, to send forth. He's going to send them out. That they might be with him and that he might 
send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Uh, To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Uh, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Very eclectic group of of guys. You see um, interesting selection here that Jesus chooses. You see two sets of brothers, by the way, uh, among the twelve. There are two sets of brothers. James and John are brothers, and uh, as well as Peter and Andrew. Uh, James and John, it's cute because Mark tells us that, that Mark's the one who tells us that uh, these were named, Jesus nicknamed them Boanerges, sons of thunder, how it translates, because these guys were hotheads. These guys, they just would mouth off and they would do things and they'd say things first and think about it later. And one of the things that the Gospels records, I think it's kind of a humorous story, it's in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples are going through the region of Samaria and they ask for lodging among the Samaritans and the Samaritans are like, well, you guys are Jews, we're not going to give you lodging. And James and John come to Jesus and say, should we pray fire from heaven to smoke them? That's the kind of guys they were. So you have them as brothers, James and John, you have Peter and Andrew, you have uh, some opposing political views in the group because you have Matthew, who's Levi, the tax collector, he was a friend of Rome, at least using Rome for a profession, and then you have also in the group Simon the Zealot. Now, being a zealot means he was a part of a political sect in the day. The zealots were anti-Rome, anti-taxes, wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And Jesus chooses a pro-Roman guy, Matthew, and, and an anti-Roman guy, Simon the Zealot. And he says, you two are going to come together and you're going to be part of my group. It's a very interesting mix that he has here. I envision Simon the Zealot because to be a zealot, you were like a freedom fighter, okay? This is, Simon's a guy that painted his face blue, got on a horseback, and was yelling, freedom, everywhere he went, okay? That's that guy, all right? Simon the Zealot. And he just wants freedom and freedom from Rome. And Jesus puts him together with Matthew. You also see here a doubter, of course, Thomas. And uh, you also see a betrayer with Judas Iscariot. And uh, these are the 12. And God's going to change the world with these 12. It's amazing to think what God can do with any of us. And he chooses these 12. And uh, he'll, he'll turn the world upside down. Well, verse 20 then says that then Jesus entered a house... And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. This is very fascinating, isn't it? Because uh, here Jesus is, he's having dinner at a house, probably still here in Capernaum. And uh, the crowds are pressing that they can't even eat, can't even have a private moment on their own. And even Jesus' own family are getting very concerned about him. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says his friends, when his friends heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Uh, but, but when you link verse 21 with verse 31, which tells us, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, uh, the, the better translation is that this is his family. And they're going to arrive in verse 31. And they want to take charge of him because they think that he's out of his mind. Now, why would his own family think that he's out of his mind? Because perhaps with the exception of of his mother, certainly his brothers 
did not believe that he was Messiah because it tells us in John 7, verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. They thought he was whack. They thought, you, you know, you're our older brother. We've grown up with you. And now all of a sudden you're, you're doing all these powerful things and you're going around proclaiming to be Messiah and we think something's wrong. Now, if you'll jump ahead to Mark chapter 6, it tells us who his brothers are by name. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. It says, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't, his, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of... The, these are the, the half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, they have the same mother, not the same father. Brother uh, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Aren't his sisters, plural, here with us? And they took offense at him. So you have listed here four brothers by name, and you have sisters plural. So there are at least two. So Jesus has at least six siblings. So growing up in that home, there were at least seven kids, and maybe more if sisters represent more than just two. But they're unnamed. The sisters are unnamed. And initially, Jesus' own family did not believe in him, did not accept him as Savior. Now, this will change. This will change at least in part because James, on this list, uh, James will become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he will be the one to write the epistle of James. That's the half-brother of Jesus. And then Judas, his name here, this is obviously not Judas Iscariot, this is a different Judas, who's also nicknamed Jude. And he will write the epistle Jude, the last book just before Revelation. So a couple of Jesus' brothers end up, they, they do end up uh, believing in him, and a couple of them end up writing epistles that get uh, uh, placed here in the New Testament canon of Scripture. Uh, but initially, they did not believe in him, and they thought that he was just out of his mind, going around doing these things and saying these things, and so they came to take charge of him. They were going to, you know, ask for guardianship in a court and they wanted to come over and take him and take him home and give him some pink pills and, and put a blanket around him and put him to bed or something because they, they think this guy is just, he's losing it. He's out of his mind. Well, back here in chapter 3, verse 22, and it says, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed, they go even further, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. See, here was the conflict. They knew that he was doing powerful miracles. And yet they didn't want to attribute the power to God because then they'd have to admit that he is God. So they attribute his power to demons because they didn't want to believe that he's Messiah. Well, how are we going to explain all the miracles? Well, then we're going to say that this, he's doing this by, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, Beelzebub is just basically a name by this time that came to be equated with Satan. Originally, you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 1, Beelzebub in the Old Testament is mentioned as a god of the Philistines. And Beelzebub loosely translates Baal, Zebub. Baal is the word for God, a false god. And Zebub, now there's a difficulty in the translation. It can mean flies. It can mean Beelzebub meaning Lord of the flies. But more literally, it's a, it's a happy way of saying Lord of the dung because flies would always hang around dung. And so the real translation is Lord of the dung, Lord of the flies. Now, these, this was a God that the Philistines worshipped. Don't ask me why you'd want to worship a God who's a God of the dung. I don't know. But in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's a curious story that happens there. King Ahaziah, uh, who is king of Israel at the time, 
the Bible says in 2 Kings 1, falls through the lattice of his palace. He's the king of Israel. He's a wicked king, the Bible says. And he, and he maybe he was, you know, a, a, a large guy. I don't know. He just falls through the lattice of his palace and he ends up crashing down the floor below and he sustains a, an injury. And so he dispatches messengers to go inquire of the Philistine god Beelzebub to see if he's going to recover from his injuries. And on the way, the Lord, an angel of the Lord appears and speaks to Elijah the prophet and says, go to King Ahaziah and rebuke him for this. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know